Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Shalom Agderap. Unless this is your first time listening with us, you know the drill. The Academy creates transformative space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. To learn more about the Academy, visit academy.upperroom.org. I want to take a moment to sincerely invite you to consider an opportunity offered by the Academy that is near and dear to my heart called Spiritual Formation in Today's World. Journey with myself and other spiritual pilgrims this new year for an online offering that consists of four three-day retreats online using Zoom. Session one begins February 24, 2022. If you are in need of community, wisdom, teaching, worship, and stillness, I encourage you to apply by February 11. For more information on this and how to apply, visit academy.upperroom.org. Now, on to this month's episode. We hear from Luther Smith on the topic of meeting God in our justice-seeking. This lecture was actually offered at session four of our year-long spiritual formation in today's world that just ended in November 2021. Luther Smith is an ordained elder in the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church, a longtime academy faculty, and a member of the Academy Advisory Board. He spent 35 years of his career as an activist, scholar, and professor at Candler School of Theology, and is known to be an authority on the life and theology of Howard Thurman. What Dr. Smith shares is perhaps an antidote to the egregious ways we exploit and water down the sacrifices and struggles of civil rights activists and movement leaders every January. We talk about making MLK Day a day on and not a day off. We pay lip service to the work of known leaders, but fail to honor grassroots organizers like Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer, Rosa Parks and Diane Nash. Listen on, dear one, and as you listen, breathe deeply and expand gently. And may these words of Dr. Smith root and ground you as we move beyond proclaiming justice with our lips, but our whole embodied lives. This morning, we spoke about Is it possible that we and others resist meeting God? For known and subconscious reasons, I think this is a question that is worthy of our attention. God seeks us. And yet, there can often be some level of uncertainty about the character of this meaning. What does it mean to meet God and to offer our hearts fully and unconditionally? This afternoon, the primary question I'm working on with you is, why do we and others resist justice seeking. Why do we resist it? And how do we overcome our resistance? Well, I think we know that in some ways, 
there can be a fear, a kind of anxiety about the struggle for justice itself. We may find ourselves questioning the various means by which justice comes about. I spoke earlier this morning about creating conflict and the ways in which conflict itself can be a means for justice, a means to justice. And so if creating conflict in which we are called to protest is needed, you can understand how the fear of being engaged in that or the anxiety about being engaged in that, especially if one has no experience with it or if one has experience with it and it hasn't been a good experience, we can understand how there can be anxiety and fear about the nature of the struggle itself for justice. We can also have anxiety and fear about the people who we will meet in the struggle for justice. People who perhaps are not like us, they are not, quote, our kind of people. And yet we are called to be with them in ways that we feel perhaps no preparation. This fear, this anxiety. I, I characterize this as the tyranny of the familiar. And perhaps for some of us and for so many that we know and so many with whom we are in connection in terms of a life of the church, we also have to consider the, not just the possibility, but the reality of having a stake in things remaining as they are. Um, we would never say, I like injustice. That's not, that's, that's not what's being said. But we could find ourselves saying, or others saying, I do not trust the ways of transformation, ways that could easily result in disruption, especially the disruption of stability, ways that bring about uncertainty. And we all know how sometimes people can live with desperate situations better than they can live with uncertainty in terms of, you know, what's coming. I'm concerned that the effort to bring about justice will result in chaos. And these are really spiritual matters. This understanding that my anxiety, my fear about the process of transformation is somehow going to overwhelm what I know to be an injustice continuing that should be addressed and eliminated. 
So despite what Jesus says about fear not, I fear. Despite what Jesus says about do not be anxious, I am anxious. Yes, we are fearsome, we are anxious, we can claim it. <laughs> but it's one thing to claim being afraid and to claim being anxious and to then submit to the fear and to the anxiety in such a way that the commitment, the discipleship to which we are called is not coming into being. That's a whole nother matter. I can acknowledge what's happening on my emotional landscape, but it's a difference in submitting to what's happening on my emotional landscape than overcoming what's happening on my emotional landscape. Um, many, many years ago, I was watching the 700 Club. I, I, um, I try to keep abreast with theological and religious perspectives that are not my own. Uh, that's by way of explanation, but I was watching the 700 Club and I was, I remember a time when uh, the whole struggle to uh, overcome apartheid was occurring in South Africa. And Pat Robertson turned to Ben, I can't remember Ben's last name, but he was an African-American man who was kind of the Ed McMahon to uh, Johnny Carson. Well, Ben was Ben was that to Pat Robertson. And Pat Robertson was expressing how um, we really cannot accept the effort to end apartheid in South Africa. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there watching the TV just uh, in shock hearing this expression. And because he said, you know, there are so many of the Africans, the black Africans who would upon having their freedoms annihilate the white Africans as an act of revenge in terms of what they've suffered. And he went on to express his anxiety about what would happen to the white minority if the colored and the black Africans were to come into power. And it was the only time I can remember Ben, his sidekick, looking at him without smiling and nodding in expression of, yeah, I, I get that, I get that. It was, there, there was this bewildered look on Ben's face in terms of that conclusion that he had. But here is an expression about fear in the process that would so disrupt and change things that it's better to remain with what we know to be an injustice than to have the transformation. There are Christians who felt that about segregation in the United States, that we have clarity about where the races ought to be. We have clarity about these institutions and how they're established. And you begin to open up school systems and all kinds of questions arise about what's going to occur if we are finding that our schools are integrated or that we are uh, really stressing um, procedures like, like busing to integrate schools are that we are in some way requiring our children to be in settings where we're not clear if they're safe. And there are persons who decided 
that segregation itself, though an injustice, was preferred over the uncertainties of what would occur with a system that ended segregation. And there are people today who feel that about dismantling racism, that it's better to keep it than to have an alternative that we might find disturbing, unsettling, destabilizing. Uh, some of this you might see in the initiatives to uh, protest against critical race theory in this country or anything that results in having students to feel bad about their race or their country or their history or their ancestors. This, this um, befuddles and bewilders me. <laughs> Protecting the feelings of children about the realities of our past. Uh, it has led uh, James Lowen to write in his book, uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me. It has led James, Lowen, which is a book I highly recommend. It's, it's, it's a book that speaks about the textbooks the, in our high schools, the American history textbooks that are just full of lies. They're not just full of alternative perspectives. They're full of lives, lies. They, they fail to tell the true story and they are forming students who will be adults who understand their history as a history of lies without knowing that they are lies. And Lowen said, this is not only a betrayal of the past, it's a betrayal of the future, and it's a betrayal of the present, that we are creating citizens who are moving into the future, misunderstanding their history, misunderstanding their past, and creating structures, institutions, ways of voting based upon lies. Um, this is happening to us now. So how do we address this kind of resistance? Resistance to overcoming the kinds of structures, institutions, systems that are ones of injustice. I think it's important for us to also name specifically something about this fear. And, and I think behind so much of the fear, it's fear of suffering. And fear of suffering is understandable. For avoiding and fleeing situations of suffering are instinctual and two of the most fundamental lessons taught by families. No one wants to be a victim of physical abuse or social ostracism. So our disposition against suffering and circumstances that might result in suffering is natural and normal. But having our lives governed by avoiding and fleeing suffering is to abandon our faith. 
for our faith often calls us into situations of suffering. A suffering that results from living as a person of faith. Suffering often results from decisions that cause us to move into life, to move into contexts of injustice. And if I explore opportunities to form relationships with those who are different than me, those who are suffering in injustice, I risk having my own priorities and lifestyle challenged beyond defense. For if I register my complaint against unethical practices at work, I risk promotion or perhaps even my job. If I take an unpopular stand on social issues, I risk alienation from friends and family and church. If I join a demonstration against the government's policies and practices, I risk being imprisoned and thought unpatriotic. We never know how far into suffering our decisions for life will take us. And this uncertainty easily causes us to resist the work of God, the dream of God for us that would take us to places and people and issues where injustice and suffering occur. To say yes to God entails risk. We know this, we say this, but responding to it is a whole nother matter of discipleship. This understanding of suffering is neither promoting a martyr complex nor understating the severe damage that results from suffering. Being a people for beloved community involves the commitment to eliminate the suffering of others, to eliminate or to address injustice. And we should do everything possible to end discrimination, abusive relationships, sexual exploitation, reckless driving, and deadly international policies. And there is mass suffering for which explanation itself seems vile. Only silence and grief respect the devastated reality of mass suffering. In addition to the suffering we should remedy and the suffering we can only grieve, there is suffering we should avoid. Many experiences of suffering result from bad decision-making, substance abuse, unhealthy eating habits, removing the social safety nets for society's poor are all forms of suffering to be avoided. We are enlivened to life when we eliminate and avoid suffering the torments. Still, being alive to life at times also requires us to embrace our suffering as a cost of being a sensitive and faithful person. Several insights emerge about suffering that are important for us. First, suffering is inevitable. <laughs> We do not live the full span of years without encountering suffering. We do not have to go looking for it. Suffering will find us. The question is not, will I suffer? 
suffering is a given. The question is, will I respond creatively to suffering? But we can uh, suffer significantly in our efforts to avoid suffering. Knowing this eliminates the expenditure of resources and energy to secure oneself against all suffering. Such security does not exist. Efforts to keep all suffering at bay occur from an illusory image of life and our powers. Knowing this should lead us to employ our minds and bodies and spirits to discern when and how suffering should be resisted and when and how suffering should be chosen. And yes, I said chosen, and I'll return to that. And second, suffering can be revelatory for discovering truth and responding faithfully to truth. Knowledge and wisdom result from engaging life fully. Life in the midst of comfort and life in the midst of suffering disclose different perspectives about the human project. Novelist Leon Bloy understood this when he wrote, in his poor heart, man has places which do not yet exist and suffering enters in in order to bring them to life. Something in us comes to life because of our experience with suffering. We must be careful that what emerges does not devour us, but instead tutors us in ways that lessen, L-E-S-S-E-N, that lessen our estrangement from life and lessens, L-E-S-S-O-N-S, our capabilities for life. This revelatory and enlivening function of suffering is described in Judith Herman's book, Trauma and Recovery. The subtitle for this book is The Aftermath of Violence from Domestic Abuse to Political Terror, where Herman writes about the work of therapists with survivors of atrocities. She discusses how counseling with these survivors takes an emotional toll on the therapists, on those who are caring, who, those who bring their professional skills to bear upon the reality of those who have suffered, who are suffering. The narrative of atrocities unsettle the therapists who then struggle not only with issues of professional competence, but also with feeling overwhelmed by the horrors their clients experienced, really struggling to decide, can I do this? Should I do this in light of what this is doing to me? Herman concludes, Judith Herman concludes, the reward of engagement is the sense of an enriched life. Therapists who work with survivors report appreciating life more fully, taking life more seriously, having a greater scope of understanding of others and themselves, forming new friendships and deeper intimate relationships, and feeling inspired by the daily examples of their patients' courage, determination, and hope. 
these therapists who experienced anxiety and fear from even being involved in this work. This is the testimony that Judith Herman gives us from their involvement. Faith seeks to save us from the suffering of being alienated from life. So faith takes us into the suffering of life. Suffering is not the purpose, but is the vehicle to an experience of freedom and wholeness. The Apostle Paul writes, we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. Romans 5. Our embrace of suffering can end our estrangement from embracing life fully. Our embrace of suffering can be a witness to the work of God amongst us. In his book, Disciplines of the Spirit, Howard Thurman speaks of suffering, not just as something that happens to us, but as a choice, getting back to what I mentioned earlier, as a choice of faithfulness. This is no appeal to masochism, neither it, is it an acceptance of injustices perpetrated against humanity. When suffering can be resisted and reduced, as I've said, we should participate in such healing activity. However, opportunities to love and the work for justice often requires to take a path on which the buzzards are circling and suffering, if not death, is assured. You can just see them on the horizon and you know, boy, to go down this trail, uh, this is not a good sign. <laughs> but if we fail to follow God's call because we are intimidated by suffering, then our fear of suffering has more power over us than our devotion to God. The threat and fear of suffering manipulate our commitment. And Thurman offers a way to be liberated instead of enslaved by suffering. He asserts that suffering is not only the encounter with pain, but suffering can also be a discipline, a discipline, a spiritual practice. That is something by choice. And when we are able to embrace suffering as a choice, we can be on the journey to which God calls us regardless of the suffering we anticipate. Then life is engaged with a freedom and compassion that suffering does not control. It, it, it's the kind of thing that was experienced by many of those involved in the civil rights movement who knew that they were facing um, police with batons and not just police with batons and, and fire hoses, but also mobs who were ready with their own clubs and devices, their, their, their hammers and anything that they felt would wreak pain upon those that they struck. Knowing all of this, they chose to go forward 
into protest, seeing that suffering was not just likely, but was certain. But there was a kind of freedom that the protest itself was seeking to instill in terms of a change of laws. They had already experienced a level of freedom, a level of, of assurance, a level of, of identity, an alignment with God's purposes for justice by choosing to be in the process. And it was a choice that had no guarantee that by doing this, the laws would be passed in your favor. It, 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 was, it was a choice because the choice itself was a liberating act. Resigning our lives to the tyranny of the familiar, to fear of disappointment, and the fear of suffering is to resist the work of God. Any one or collaboration of these factors can convince us that perhaps justice is not for us. This conclusion is understandable, but deadly. And ironically, it results in our lives being separated from the peace, from the wholeness that God intended for us. A peace that surpasses all understanding. To resist this is to resist the freedom necessary to be on the journey toward a more fulfilling life, to be on the journey to justice. resist justice seeking? Why do we resist meeting God? Does the tyranny of the familiar that Dr. Smith spoke of sound familiar? Dr. Smith is right in saying no one would say I like injustice, but we don't always trust the ways of transformation either. With whom might you need to connect in order to listen to the realities demanding justice in your community where you shop, where you live, where you work? With whom might you need to connect that might paint a different reality than what you experience that would make it impossible for you to shy away from or stay silent about, no matter how uncomfortable it might make you? I appreciate the encouragement from Dr. Smith to stay the course. That opportunities to love and work for justice <laughs> are paved along a treacherous road. That threat and fear of suffering can manipulate our commitment to justice, but we must not give in. How can we respond creatively to suffering, suffering that is guaranteed if we are to do this work of making justice and meeting God. Let us draw encouragement from those who have gone before us, for, from those who have chosen the process of transformation, even if they didn't know the outcome from those who allowed themselves to be aligned with the purposes of God, who by the very act of choosing 
participated in their own liberation. One of the quotes we may not hear this month that comes from Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King goes, love has power that we have never tapped. And if we use it, we can transform our own lives and the earth in which we live. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the same love that comes down at Christmas shines brightly through Epiphany, dives into the water with us at baptism? Do you believe that 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 love can transform not only our own lives, but the very earth that is so wounded and crying out for healing? May it be so. Thanks for listening along with us today. Share this podcast with others and may it be a nudge, a guide, an honoring of intuitions you've long held and a means for justice in your own lives and in the lives of all. To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides like Luther Smith, join us at the next online or in-person Academy retreat. For more information, visit academy.upperroom.org.